Well, hello, everybody. Thank you again for being with us. Going back to seminary class, this is our Saturday session. I'm Father Chris Alar from the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. <clears throat> Beautiful sunny day today. Uh, a little cooler, but uh, warming up, and we're glad that you are here. As my seminary uh, priest teacher used to say, when, you know, in seminary, we had a class on each of the sacraments. And he said, I remember him saying, now this isn't the most riveting class you will ever have, but it is probably the most important. <clears throat> and today we're going to learn about these other sacraments. We've already done a class on baptism a few weeks ago, two classes on confession, two classes on Holy Communion. Again, you can find all these back in our YouTube channel. Uh, we did a class on the priesthood ordination, holy orders, and we did a class on matrimony and marriage and divorce. So the only two remaining in our seminary training for the sacraments are the forgotten sacraments. As you saw in your slide, the sacrament of confirmation and anointing of the sick. Very few people understand what's involved, what you need to know, how you handle it, and when you can receive these sacraments and when you can't. So this is what you saw on the slide, and praise be to God, this is a, a great opportunity for us to learn more about our faith. And if Brother Mark can show the next slide, this is part, a continuing part of our Explaining the Faith series. Again, that's the uh, first 13 talks you see on your screen that you can get at shopmercy.org or call 1-800-462-7426 or even stream it live on the website that you see there. So God bless all of you for being here. Let us now, let us begin with a prayer, asking God for the grace to be with all of us today through the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask, like in the grace of the sacraments, you send us the Holy Spirit today to open our minds and hearts, to receive the knowledge, to know you better, and therefore the grace to love you better. We know that through knowing you, we can love you better and even more than we have. And we ask for the grace to cooperate with all the graces you are giving here today. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> I was reading some of the online comments it's the other day on one of the videos, and we have many videos up online. And someone had said, Father, the sacraments are not in the Bible. This is a Catholic creation. And I listed all the places the sacraments are um, found in the Bible, instituted by Christ, right? And saying that the church made them up. No, Jesus gave us the sacraments. And so taking you back to seminary, which again, it's awesome because you don't have to pay tuition and you could do this on your own time. You have to come back later and watch the rest. That's okay. But we know this is one of the most important things of our faith, the sacraments. Even if they're the, not the most thrilling, they are the most important. And so we all know that the sacraments give us grace to heal. We know about the healing power in the confessional and the grace of the Eucharist, right? Real, real grace. But we forget that the sacraments also strengthen us for this battle that we are in. And I did a talk 
long time ago on spiritual warfare. You can find that on YouTube, and this is where you need the help. The help comes, Father, I'm being attacked by the devil. I'm being attacked by the evil one. Are you going to the sacraments? Are you receiving this grace? Or at least if you can't, because the churches are open, doing acts of contrition, spiritual communion, these types of things. All right, now, grace is not just about receiving knowledge of God, but it's joining with God himself, uniting with him himself. This is what grace is. Now, it is an eternal communion of life and love. Grace is everything, and that is a glorious gift, obviously. Now, the highest good in all of the universe, in the entire universe, the greatest good that's given to us, of course, the greatest good is God. God is good as himself. But the greatest good in the entire universe is grace. And the only place you are guaranteed grace, yeah, God can give grace as he wills, when he wills, but the only place it is guaranteed that he has to give it to you, if you're properly disposed, is the sacraments. And so this is what's going on. It is the grace of divine sonship. We become adopted sons and daughters of God. We become members of his family through the sacraments. And this is the meaning and purpose to start with baptism. As I said, I did a talk on baptism, which is being strengthened, okay, by confirmation. So as powerful as baptism is, you guys always hear about baptism. We talk about baptism. You hear it said by priests. You, you, you hear it on television, the importance about baptism. But do you know that baptism is incomplete? Few people know that. Baptism is completed and strengthened by confirmation. And so this is what we want to talk about. It gives us a greater conformity to Christ that expands on baptism. And so the glory of our sonship with God might be lived out morally better at a time when we are most facing temptations and a crazy culture. That's why we're baptized as we try to get a little bit older to enter into the fight of spiritual warfare. And especially now we need this grace because of the temptations of the world. Now, the temptations and occasions to sin in our culture today are unprecedented. So this is the medicine of our times, the sacraments and especially confirmation. So we're going to start today. Remember the definition of a sacrament. A sacrament is not just a symbol. A sacrament is real grace. It actually does something. You've heard me say this before, but this is what my instructors and priests in seminary drilled in our heads. A sacrament is an efficacious sign, meaning it does something. It's not just a symbol of God's grace instituted by Christ and in the Bible and entrusted to the church. That's how she dispenses it, by which divine life is instilled in us. All right, now, I want to go back and give a quick summary of the sacraments again. Just going to spend a minute here. And so let's show our next slide. These are the sacraments of initiation. All right. Initiation are baptism. All right. Holy Eucharist and confirmation. All right. Usually these three are known or they should be known as the sacraments of initiation. They initiate us into the Christian life. Life is a Christian. So 
Today we're going to talk about confirmation. And then the next group are the sacraments of healing. We're going to talk about one of these today. So the sacraments of healing are reconciliation, that's confession, and the anointing of the sick. Totally misunderstood, totally not grasped. We're going to help you understand that today. And then finally, the sacraments of service. Your true vocation is either a priest or usually in matrimony. Another vocation is the single life, but not necessarily a sacrament, but a great sacrifice and a true great vocation. Now, the th of those seven sacraments, three are primary, and they're what we call indelible, means you can't repeat them. They're only done once in your life because a mark is put on your soul. And these are the three that you don't repeat. Baptism. It puts a mark, indelible mark on your soul. Confirmation, which we're going to talk about today, is not repeated. It's put a mark on your soul. And holy orders, ordination to the priesthood, put a mark on my soul. Now, none of the others do that. The others can be repeated. Well, wait a minute, Father, marriage can't repeat it. Jesus says it's forever. Yes, but don't forget if a spouse dies you can remarry. Totally valid within the church. So there is a, a situation where marriage can be repeated. All right, now, let's start with the big topic today, two of them. First, next slide, confirmation. This is the sacrament that ends the sacraments of initiation. It is very much needed. It completes, as I said, the sacrament of baptism. People don't realize that. It brings a deepening of baptismal grace. Being baptized is absolutely necessary to begin your life, but it's not enough to complete it. This is powerful stuff. Baptism is a sacrament of our new birth where we become babies in Christ. Confirmation is the sacrament of battle, where you become adults with Christ, soldiers with Christ, soldiers of Christ. So that's why I personally believe confirmation is really the most underrated of all the seven sacraments and forgotten. It increases the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit found in Isaiah that allow us to fight this battle. We don't have a prayer to win this battle and save our souls if we are not armed with the spiritual weapons. Those come in the form of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You remember this from the Bible? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, godliness, and fear of the Lord. These are strengthened at confirmation, given to us at confirmation, increased at confirmation. So these gifts of the Holy Spirit are infused into the soul and it gives that person the power to overcome temptations and occasions of sin, to rise to a new level of holiness. If you're wondering, why can't I be holy? Why can't I be holy? Are you calling upon the gifts of your confirmation? Are you calling upon the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Are you calling upon the gifts of the grace of confession and holy communion? Or if you can't, act of contrition, spiritual communion. We face hard times right now and we need the gifts of the Holy Spirit because we can't get by ourselves. Natural virtues, just being nice, those are good, but they're not gonna make it. 
This is why people say to me, well, Father, he doesn't believe in God, but he's a good person. My own aunt said that. She says, oh, well, you know, this person, he's living, you know, he's living with his boyfriend and, you know, he doesn't ever go to church, but he's really a good person. God bless him. And we pray for him, but it's not enough. It's not enough to just be a good person. You need the grace, supernatural grace. Natural grace means you're surviving in this world, you're doing fine, but you need the supernatural grace from heaven if you think you're going to make it. And if we don't, if we know somebody who's not, we pray for them that they be given that grace, even if it's not to the moment of their death. All right, now, that is what the sacrament of confirmation is all about. It gives the special strength of the Holy Spirit to spread and defend the faith like the apostles did. This is what happened to them. Confirmation could be described as our own personal Pentecost because at Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, the Holy Spirit came down upon Mary and the apostles. He does the same thing to you at confirmation. That's your personal Pentecost. Then they were emboldened, they were fearless, they went out and they preached about the Lord instead of hiding in their rooms. We're still hiding in our rooms and I don't mean physically necessarily, but we're afraid to mention Jesus in, you know, in public, we're afraid to mention Jesus to our friends. That means you haven't accepted the grace of your Pentecost. So the Pentecost gives us the strength and the encouragement and, 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 and lessens the fear so that we can preach and teach and live. It doesn't mean you have to stand on a soapbox and preach scripture, but it means that you're not afraid to defend God if called upon. All right. It's where the Holy Spirit received at baptism all of a sudden bursts into your life. That's confirmation, all right? You know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ is a title, is Greek, Christos, which means anointed. And that is what anointing is. It's what baptism and confirmation both involve, an anointing with a chrism, chrism oil. And we'll talk about that. So it's the sacrament of fortitude, courage, this is why we have now to arm ourselves in the fight to fight the good fight. This is the strength. This is your weapons. This is the grace that if you use the spiritual weapons of Mary and divine mercy, you've, you've been given the, the bullet, but you, got the, you have to have the gun to fire it. And I don't mean literally a gun. Please don't write me letters. I mean our spiritual weapons. And this is the grace of the Holy Spirit to fight the good fight. So basically, we are now being drafted into God's army, or you could say we enlist. In World War II, men, more men enlisted to fight the good fight against the tyranny of Germany and Japan rather than being drafted. They enlisted. I want to fight that good fight. That's why they were the greatest generation. This is Christ's armies, and we become soldiers of Christ fighting the evil. And that's what confirmation does. It makes a person a full member of the church, which is the army that we're talking about, is the church. Well, Father, how do I enlist in this army? You're here with us. The Marian helpers, being a Marian helper, that is a special forces group of Mary's army. God's army is the church. That's the, like, like the United States Army in World War II. Within it are segments, the army, the navy, the air force, the marines. And within it, 
the Marian helpers are a special forces. We're not even, we're not even a branch of the military. We're a special forces group. And so this is what's powerful. And this is the army we're talking about. Now, you've been given, if you're special forces, you better have your parachute when you jump off the plane. You better have your boots on when you hit the ground. You better have the gun on your back when you're ready to fight. And I don't mean a physical gun, but a rosary and the weapons that God gives us in Mary and divine mercy. It gives you all the graces necessary to be an adult in the faith even though you can receive the grace of confirmation long before you're physically an adult. You're, you become growth in the faith. In the Eastern Catholic Church, infants are confirmed at the time they're baptized as babies. So they know this is important. We could confirm in the West. We're Western Catholics, right? Latin right under the Pope, the See of Rome. We could do confirmation at the time of baptism and first communion. This could be done. And there is a connection. So let's look at our next slide. <clears throat> Here's a confirmation. Some dioceses now, as you see, they're bringing the confirmation to different age groups. So these different age groups are you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a physical adult in the church because some young children. I've seen them homeschooled, are more adults in the faith than 50, 60, 70-year-olds that I know, <clears throat> including myself when I was in my 20s. There were some 10-year-olds that knew their faith better than me when I was 30. And so adult in the church doesn't mean that you're an adult physically in the church. It means you're growing into that role. All right, some dioceses now have encouraged returning to an older tradition of not even picking a name at confirmation. Remember, you used to have those, when I got confirmed, I had those that um, you look like, the, 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 the pretty young ladies look like um, beauty contestant pageants where they would wear the, the, the name across and, 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 and it would say their confirmation name, like Elizabeth or Catherine. And now some dioceses are saying we're going to go back to an older tradition of not picking a name at confirmation. People were very upset writing me letters that their diocese didn't let them pick names, saying this is tragedy, they're losing tradition. Actually, the older tradition is not to pick a name. It's kind of surprising. Because the continuing the use of the name given at baptism is the intent. It will serve as a link between the sacraments of baptism and confirmation using the same name you were given at baptism. Kind of interesting. All right, let's keep going. Now, let's go to our next slide. Is confirmation in the Bible? Here we see what's going on with the apostles and the ancient first Christians. All right, the sacrament of confirmation. What is it? Well, first of all, it's in the Bible. We'll get to that in a minute, as you can see. It's the reception of the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands. So we all know how important baptism is, right? And we said the confirmation completes baptism. Father, you're crazy. That's a Catholic made up thing. Uh-uh. It's in the Bible. How do we know? Let's look at our next slide. Now, when the apostles, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Well, I'll talk about two heavy hitters who went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now listen to this. For it had not yet fallen upon any of them. This is fascinating. I bet you've not heard this. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's saying they've been baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. This is scripture. Then they laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 8.14. This is fascinating. This shows to fully get the Holy Spirit, we need confirmation. Or what about Acts 19, verse 5 and 6? When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm reading from Acts 19. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So basically it's saying right there, they were baptized already. But it wasn't until Paul laid his hands on them that the Holy Spirit came onto them. I bet you didn't know that. So this is important. This is what I learned in seminary. I didn't know that till I went to seminary. And now that's why I'm taking you with me. You guys are my students. This is awesome. All right, now, so these new believers in Christ evidently still needed to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, non-Catholics will point, yeah, I bet you've all heard this before. Once saved, always saved. I've already been saved. I was saved on April the 11th, 1998. The day I professed Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. The day the Holy Spirit came upon me. The day I was sealed in the Holy Spirit. I bet you've heard that, right? That comes from Ephesians 4.30. Quote, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Beautiful passage. And many evangelicals and fundamental Protestants not only wrongly interpret Ephesians 4.30 when it comes to just when Christians receive the Holy Spirit, because it says they were sealed for the day of redemption. They also interpret it to mean that they receive this seal, which it does say you receive the seal, that it's a guarantee of heaven. No, it's not. There is a heresy in once saved, always saved. That's not church teaching, nor is it biblical, okay? We have to work out our conversion daily, our salvation daily. Now, this is known as the heresy of once saved, always saved. It's very popular amongst Calvinists. Now, the seal of Ephesians 4.30 is indelible. It says we're given the seal of the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, and it helps us to cooperate with grace, you want to know how you're saved? And people, I'm sorry, I've been confusing because I've been talking a lot about works lately in my homilies and my videos. And people are correcting me. Father, it's only grace. Well, okay, we're both right. It starts with grace. Nothing happens without grace. And you are saved through God's grace, the grace given by Jesus Christ in the sacraments. But you got to cooperate with that grace through your good works. So both are needed, and you are right, and I guess I should have stressed this more. Thank you to you who wrote the letters. God bless you, because you made me think about this, and you are right. If I mention good works without mentioning grace, I've made a mistake. But if the non-Catholics mention grace, and that's all it is, without good works, they've made a mistake. 
You want to get saved? You're only saved through God's grace. Where is God's grace only found guaranteed? In the sacraments. But you then got to cooperate with that grace in good works, in love, in charity, if you want to be saved. How do we know this? Easy. I'm about to tell you right now. All right. The truth is, there is nothing in Ephesians 4.30 that guarantees heaven. All right. The fact is, to seal in the Holy Spirit means it gives us the grace to cooperate with God's grace. All right? This is always mistaken. There is nothing that guarantees heaven except grace cooperated with. The truth is we do not cooperate with the grace of the sacrament. I should say, if we do not cooperate with the grace of the sacrament and we reject those graces we will be lost. God can give you grace. That's why Catholics who receive the sacraments can go to hell. Father, I get these letters. Father, you're telling me that all I have to do is receive a sacrament. I'm guaranteed grace. That means I get to heaven. Yeah, you're guaranteed the grace. But if you don't cooperate with it, you're going nowhere. It's kind of like putting gas in your tank but not starting the car. The car's not going to go anywhere even though it's got all the gas in the tank. All right. The truth is, if we don't cooperate with the grace of the sacrament and we reject those graces, we will be lost. And this is true of all gifts of grace we receive. We must work out our conversion or our salvation daily. Conversion is daily with fear and trembling. Jesus teaches in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. Don't be afraid. Don't say, well, then I don't want the sacraments because then I'm responsible. Well, if you don't want the sacraments, then you don't even get to the starting line because it's grace and good works. And so if you want to start with grace, excuse me, if you want to get saved and you say, well, I don't want to be responsible to whom much is given, much is expected. Well, when you're given grace, that's much. Now much is expected. Well, then don't give it to me. Well, then you don't even get to the finish line of salvation. In order to get to the finish line, you need the grace to even start the race. Then you got to cooperate with that grace to finish the race. Man, this is all just coming to me. I, I, this is actually not in my script, but this is where I feel the Holy Spirit saying this is what we have to realize. Now, let's get back to what Jesus said. In John 15, 1, 6, this I had in the script. He adds that unless the faithful continue to abide in him, they will be cast forth as a branch thrown into the fire and burned. There is nothing even close to once saved, always saved. It's false. It's grace and then cooperation with the grace. And again, thank you for the letters because... I need to re-clarify this in my future videos. Lumen Gentium, Vatican II document, paragraph 14, addresses this. It says that we are bound to the church through the sacraments. This is where we get the grace. But that doesn't guarantee we are saved. Even if we're in the church, we may not be saved without charity, it says. Good works. We are just a bodily member of the church and not in the heart of the church. We're in the pew of the church. We need to get to the heart. It says, if they fail, quote, this is Lumen Gentium, if they fail 
to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. Holy mackerel, I don't want that. You don't want that. This is important. Don't again say, well, then don't give me this grace because I don't want the responsibility. You don't get the grace and you're not saved anyway. We get the grace, we cooperate with the grace, then we're saved. And it is necessary for salvation in the sense that it is an essential aid for Christians to be faithful unto death so that Jesus can justly, quote, give them the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. So Ephesians 4.30 refers to what marks and equips us but it is not a guarantee of final salvation. So you get that. With all the sacraments, guaranteed grace, just simply give your fiat like Mary did yesterday or on Thursday. Yes. Yes, Lord. So it requires our cooperation in order to bear fruit. Wow. I went too long on that, but I think that was worth it. You just got a whole set of semester on seminary right there. God bless you for hanging with me. Now, when should you get confirmed? All right, the church teaches between seven years old and 16 years old is pretty much the standard, but confirmation could be denied. Please don't get mad at the pastor. He has the right to deny it legitimately if he sees some issues, like the disposition of someone who fails to ever come to mass. These are why people get mad at the priest because they want to have their child baptized. Well, you got to make the promise you're going to raise your child in the faith if you baptize them, but they've never once been to church. So don't get mad at your priest. So he fails to regularly attend mass is a question. He who denies the faith or expresses desire not to be confirmed or displays an exaggerated ignorance of the faith, these or similar actions can have the priest say, you're not ready. A pastor can't deny it, though, cannot deny confirmation solely based on a lack of maybe the duties that they were assigned weren't fulfilled because maybe they were working long hours, they had family problems, you know, attendance at parish programs or activities, or a little bit of lack of the faith based on their age. The priest can't deny them for that, or even missing mass occasionally, which go to confession. But preparation doesn't necessarily have to be at the church. You have the right to educate your children at home on confirmation in order to be confirmed, done by you as the parents. So when is it normally done? Between Easter Sunday and Pentecost. That's usually when confirmation is done. So we're getting ready for this. Now, should I force my teen father to be confirmed? Okay, great question. I'm sure all of you have been in this. The faithful, here's what the canon law says. The faithful are bound to receive the sacrament at the proper time. Parents and parish priests are to see that the faithful are properly instructed to receive the sacrament and come to it at the opportune time. Now, that's the key. It states basically that parents are to see that their children are properly instructed. That's your job but leaves it open as to when, right, the sacrament should be conferred on the children. But it has to be done before marriage. <clears throat> You're a baptized Catholic. You need to be married in the Catholic Church. And in order to get married in the Catholic Church, 
you have to have been confirmed. So we have to have that. Now, if your teen doesn't want to be confirmed, no, mom, I don't want to do this. You can say that the church wants you more fully initiated into the faith, Junior, and this is good. It's not me, even though it should be you. You see, it's the church, Junior, that wants you. God wants you. He wants you part of his family. You know, if our parents said that more to the children, I think more would probably say, okay. Rather than just looking at it as some mindless or meaningless ceremony that they'd rather play video games. No, we have to tell them what's going on here. It means that they are importantly a part of God's family. So then they are baptized, confirmed, and receive Holy Communion. And that is what the Latin church says is very important. The Latin church, though, gives leeway as to when we are confirmed. All right, you may want to consider waiting, possibly, because if your teen doesn't want to be confirmed, here's the catch, here's the problem. If your teen doesn't want to be confirmed, he likely won't be open to that grace. In other words, he won't cooperate with that grace we just talked about and preparation that is needed, all right, for a fruitful reception of that sacrament where the grace can fully work. They have to be open to it. Now, you probably could force your child to be confirmed, and some of you probably have but you can't force them to have the proper, proper disposition or openness to receiving those graces of confirmation and letting them flow into their life, into their, their, their heart. So what do you do? All right. You have the right and obligation as a parent to see that your child is educated in the Christian religion. Just in the same way, you have the right and obligation to see that they are educated at school, secular school. Would you say to your child, this says, mom, I don't want to get confirmed when he's a sophomore. Would you say to that same child who the sophomore says, mom, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to be educated. Would you say, well, it's your choice, honey? No, you wouldn't. You would say, Junior, I want to work with you. We'll figure this out, but you, you got to. It's for your own good. You'll never get a job. You won't be able to be employed. You won't be able to make ends meet. You won't be able to raise a family. You got to go to school. Well, it's the same way with confirmation. Junior, you want to be in the family of God. You want to be fully receiving the graces God wants to give you. This is the way to do it. And we want to get to heaven. This is a way to do it. All right. But if he is resistant to fostering this disposition within himself, it may be better for your child to wait for a more opportune time. Because remember the catechism or canon law said, when the time, the opportune time. So this is the catechism 890, I think, not canon law or catechism 890. Now, if they were confirmed, let's suppose you're saying, oh, no, Father. Two years ago, I forced my child to be confirmed. But it's too late now. They've been confirmed. What do I do? Should I redo it? Okay, here's the thing. Confirmation is not redone twice unless it was invalid. Now, if your child totally despised it, 
totally was an atheist, totally didn't believe anything in of it and rejected it. Yes, as they get older, they may have to redo confirmation. Now, don't please go tell your bishop the Father Chris said to redo my confirmation. Confirmation isn't redone. It's only done once, but validly. So if it was done invalidly because they rejected the grace, you may have to have it redone. Now, it's never too late for confirmation. You can be confirmed at any time, right? But you run the risk of them getting older and never coming back. So pray on this. All right. Now, who should confirm and who should be confirmed? All right, let's watch this next video. I've only got two short videos today. They're just a minute each, but they give you a real good little summary on confirmation. Let's, let's watch. Confirmation is the second sacrament of initiation and is meant to perfect the graces we receive at our baptism. At baptism, we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the first time. These gifts are virtues given to help us fight temptation and live holy lives. At confirmation, these gifts are strengthened within us. Confirmation also fully initiates us into the Catholic Church. If we were baptized as infants, our parents decided to have us enter the Church. At Confirmation, we proclaim our belief in the Catholic faith and reaffirm our parents' decisions to bring us into the Church. In doing this, we become adults in the faith. Confirmation was initiated at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the Apostles, giving them courage and strength to proclaim the Gospel to all nations. The matter of confirmation is the sacred chrism, which the bishop places on the recipient's forehead in the shape of a cross. The form is the words of the bishop, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The minister of this confirmation is typically a bishop. However, on special occasions when a bishop is not available, a priest may administer confirmation. In spite of all this, confirmation is not actually necessary to gain eternal life, since we received all the grace we need to do so from baptism. But confirmation greatly helps us along our way to heaven, strengthening us and giving us grace. Thus, it is highly recommended that we should receive it. So that's confirmation. Okay, that was a good little short video that gives you kind of a basic understanding of what I've been saying and will continue to say on confirmation. Now, who is it that confirms? It is the ordinary. When you hear the word ordinary, that's the bishop. He's the ordinary person who usually does confessions. Now, he can delegate it to a priest. So don't worry if you go and take your child to confirmation and a priest shows up. That is valid if the bishop delegated it to him. Now, sometimes a priest can still confirm even if the bishop didn't delegate to him. And that's in the case of an emergency, right? Like near death. Okay, now, Catechism 1306 says... Every baptized person not yet confirmed can and should receive the sacrament of confirmation. Now, Thomas Aquinas says, age of the body does not determine age of the soul. That's interesting. Even in childhood, man contain, can attain spiritual maturity. What does that mean? Thomas Aquinas is saying, don't worry so much about the age. Look at the spiritual maturity to see if they are ready to be confirmed. So it depends on when they are ready uh, maturity-wise, not age-wise. If not, pray that it'll be done in God's good time. All right, now, let's look at our next slide. Why do we use oil? You've probably seen the oils at church. Up behind the altar in the sanctuary somewhere, they be in a little glass case. 
O-I, what is that? That is oil of the infirmed. That is for the anointing of the sick. I will talk about that next shortly. O-S, what is that? That's oleum sanctorum. That means oil of the catechumens. It's the first part that we use, for instance, in baptism. The baby is first given that oil. Now, SC is the sacred chrism. Um, it's Latin, but it's basically the sacred chrism. We use the chrism in the oil in baptism and in confirmation. Now, this is important because it follows the tradition of being anointed in the scriptures. In the Bible, someone who was anointed was anointed with oil. Remember reading about this? It's a symbol that they have a spirit-led mission. As I said, the name Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means the Messiah or Greek anointed one, Christos, which means the anointed one. Jesus is anointed for a mission. What was his mission that he was anointed with the oil? Remember when Mary put the oil and anointed him? Why? His mission was to save humanity from their sins. Christos, Christ, the anointed one. When you're anointed, you're given a mission. So a Christian is literally an anointed one given a spiritual-led mission. What's your mission? Get you and your family to heaven. That's why you're anointed. That's why you're Christian. And every day when you get up, ask for the grace to do it. Remember, cooperate with that grace. And when you go to bed, reflect on where I missed it so I can help correct it tomorrow. You do this, you're on your way. All right, man, this is great stuff. I'm bringing seminary to you. I was just like, I think every Christian should go to seminary. I know they can't, but if every Catholic went to seminary, a good seminary, none of this crazy stuff that we hear in some seminaries teaching this yo-yo stuff, junk, but good stuff. Like I was fortunate to have. Now, if you seal, why oil? If you seal something with oil, like an object, it makes it stronger. It's less likely to leak, for instance, if it's like a container. If you seal a wound with oil, it heals. Athletes used to be given oil to soothe their muscles, to help them compete better. Some still do. Oil is a strengthening element in the ancient world. And we've carried that tradition. That's why oil is used as a matter, as the matter in confirmation. Remember, the form is the words that are said, and the matter is the material. What's the matter of the Eucharist? Bread and wine. What's the form? The Eucharistic prayer of consecration. So in confirmation, it's the same. The matter is the oil, because it is through this material substance that it is known to strengthen. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. In a similar way, water is used in baptism. What's the matter? I love that term, what's the matter? What's the matter in baptism? Water, because water gives life. And for instance, you ever wonder why they talk about baptism being a death? I always wondered that till I got to seminary. Why is baptism called a death? Because water can give life, but it also can kill if you drown. And water at baptism drowns your sins. It kills your old life. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you restored our life. 
So the Holy Spirit kills sin within us in baptism. It drowns out the sin and gives us life in Christ. So the Holy Spirit strengthens us through this matter of the oil and is known for its strengthening properties. That's what oil was used for, as I just said. So it's not that the oil strengthens us, but the Holy Spirit through the oil. The oil may strengthen our body, but the Holy Spirit uses the oil to strengthen our soul. All right, we're doing all right. I'm trying to catch back up here so we can get you out on time. Now, let's go through a couple more things. It's the Holy Spirit, as I said, that is working through the oil that gives you the strength. Just like it's not the water that saves us from sin and baptism, but the Holy Spirit using the water through the medium of water. So the seal at confirmation shows that we belong to God. It's a mark put on our soul. You've heard me say, like making the sign of the cross, it's like branding yourself in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's like branding yourself so that at the end when souls are separated and the wheat and the chafe, which are together now in the world, are separated, when the angels are separating the good from the bad and they're throwing the good over here and the bad over here, if they see that mark on you, you're going to go to the good pile. That mark is any indelible mark. Confirmation, baptism, those are indelible marks on our soul, like being branded, like a cowboy brands his belonged cattle that belong to him. We're like the cattle that belong to God. And he brands us with his ID. So that when the angels separate us at the end of time, they know that we belong to him. Man, good stuff. All right, we think about kings. They used to seal documents. Remember how a king used to seal a document? They would pour hot wax, seal a letter, or they'd fold a letter, and they would pour hot wax on the document. Then they would press their ring into it as a way to seal it, that it was authentic, so that it couldn't be broken. If it was red, it means it was open and broken. So we have that kind of seal on us. Now, just a little side note. When the priest has sealed you in the oil... He's got some oil on his hands. Does he just wipe it on his shirt? No. During the sacrament of confirmation, when the bishop is there, they wash their hands with lemon and bread. It's just a little side note. In a bowl filled with water. Why? The lemon cuts the oil quite effectively, and the bread dries the hands. Just a little side note, but something I thought was interesting. All right. What about confirmation in canon law? All right, canon law. Let's look at this. 881 says, it is desirable to celebrate the sacrament of confirmation in a church. Do you have to be confirmed in a church? You should be confirmed in a church during mass, but for a great cause, it can be celebrated outside of mass. Canon 892, and I'm just picking the best summaries for you here. I'm not giving you the full, complete description. I'm giving you the basics. Canon 892 <clears throat> says, as far as possible, you should have a, a sponsor. My confirmation sponsor was Tommy Eby out of Monroe, Michigan. His dad, Carl, and my dad were best lifelong friends. I, those two men were the ultimate example of Christians. He was a star athlete, three-sport athlete at Monroe Catholic Central. I just looked up to him like an idol. He was my confirmation sponsor. Confirmation sponsors should take you under their wing, teach you the faith, walk with you in your faith. So don't take it lightly. 
The sponsor is to take care of the confirmed person, behaving as a true witness of Christ. Boy, Tommy Eby sure was. Fulfilling the obligations of the sacrament. Don't take it lightly. Canon 266 says, why is this sacrament called confirmation or in the East, chrismation? You've probably heard that. This is also in Catechism 1289. It is called chrismation because the essential rite of the sacrament is anointed with chrism. That's the chrism oil. SC that you saw in those bottles, sacred chrism. It's also called confirmation here in the West because it confirms the grace of the Holy Spirit. You've been confirmed now. You got the Holy Spirit at baptism, but now I'm confirming it in you. In the West, this anointing is done usually on the forehead. So the bishop will put the oil on the forehead and say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. My goodness, those simple one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words. You can find very few more powerful nine words. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we are there at the conference, do we have any idea what that is? That is huge. So don't forget to receive confirmation efficaciously so that you understand it as best you can. And certainly be in a state of grace because you can't receive it efficaciously if you're not in a state of grace. So go to confession to make sure, even teenagers, boy, they're some of the ones that really need to be in a state of grace. So make sure that happens. All right, sacraments. Keep in mind, though, are not magic spells where words and objects have the power. No, God has the power. He uses the words and the objects. Just like the Old Testament, moments in which God grants the privilege, allowing us to be part of his plan to deliver grace is incredible. God is allowing you to be part of his plan to deliver grace. Are you kidding me? And we just blow this off? I don't get it. The grace received in confirmation is so vital that baptism is incomplete without it. This is why the Eastern Church, I mentioned, gives confirmation immediately after baptism. They don't want you wasting any time. Now, baptism and confirmation initiate the individual into Christianity. But the Eucharist, let's never forget that, completes all this. It, it's connecting the individual to the rest of the church at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Whole nother topic, very important. All right. Sorry I took too much time there, but I feel that was worth it. Let's go on our, our uh, and it's less than half the time, uh, maybe much, much shorter. Let's talk about our next slide, anointing of the sick. Okay, here's the point that I wanted with these two sacraments. Confirmation, every one of us should have already done. If you haven't, please do it. But anointing of the sick is everything, I'm sorry, is something everyone eventually will need. Praise God that we have the opportunity to get it. Hopefully we'll die in a chance to get the sacrament of anointing of the sick and not maybe lost tragically or suddenly unprepared. Now, this is why I'm talking about these two sacraments because confirmation, one, is one that we should all have already done and two, anointing of the sick is one that we all will probably have or we pray that we will have. So don't think that this doesn't apply to you. 
It does. All right, let's look at our next slide. Let's read from Mark 6, 13 as we look at this picture. The 12, who are the 12? The apostles, of course, drove out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they cured them. Did you hear that? They drove out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and cured them. This is biblical, the anointing of the sick. One of the most powerful passages. Let's go to our next slide. I love the book of James. This is James 5, 14. If, no, no, I'm sorry. Is anyone among you sick? Oh yeah. He should summon the presbyters. That's priests. That's what that means. Of the church. And they should pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, earlier we were talking about anointing in the, with oil in confirmation. Now we're talking about anointing with oil in anointing of the sick. Okay? This is a different kind of oil. This is O-I, the oil of the infirmed. Earlier it was oil S-C, the sacred chrism oil. So now... He should summon the priests of the church, and they should pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. Now listen to this. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. This is what the church teaches about the sacrament of anointing. And non-Catholics say, how dare you make such a claim? There it is. James 5, 14, 15. There it is. So the anointing of the sick is administered to bring spiritual healing and even physical strength during illness, especially near the time of death. Now, this is not the last rites, though. Stay with me on this. Even though it is especially to be used near the time of death, the Catechism says in 1514, quote, the anointing of the sick is not a sacrament for those only who are at the point of death. Oh, wow, Father, I didn't know that. It's especially for those who are at the point of the death, but not only for those who are at the point of death. Hence, as soon as any one of the faithful begins to be in danger of death from sickness or old age, it is fitting that they now receive this sacrament. And remember, too, it could also be going under anesthesia, where you have the danger of not waking up. That's why people can get anointed before going into surgery, if they go under anesthesia. Remember, again, I keep talking about anointing with oil. This beginning of the talk was anointing of oil in the sacred chrism in confirmation. Now I am talking about anointing with the oil of the infirmed in the sickness. So different here. So stay with me. All right. The anointing of sick conveys several graces and imparts gifts of strengthening in the Holy Spirit. Against, listen to this, anxiety, discouragement, temptations, and gives peace and fortitude. Who of us here has not faced some form of anxiety, depression, discouragement, or temptation. Some people face all of those every day. 
And so this is powerful, a powerful healing. So like confirmation, there is a sealing with holy oil that brings protection. So while the anointing of the sick brings healing to the soul, it also gives us trust in the ability of God to heal the body. That's why it's not last rites just by itself. It's part of last rites, and I'll explain that. But don't let people get scared. This is for healing, but only again if God wills it. So what is anointing? Let's watch another one-minute video that gives you a good little summary of what anointing is. Anointing of the sick is a second sacrament of healing. It is given to the very sick, the elderly, and those near death in order to give them peace and strengthen their pain, as well as unite their suffering to Christ's suffering on the cross. Sometimes, if it is the will of God, this sacrament may also bring physical healing. The matter of anointing of the sick is the physical anointing of the person with the oil of the sick. The form is the words of the priest, Through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin save you and raise you up. The minister is a bishop or priest. A deacon cannot perform this sacrament. Jesus instituted the anointing of the sick during his public ministry. The Bible says Jesus sent out his apostles, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Anointing of the sick is one of the three sacraments, along with penance and the Eucharist, that make up the last rites. These are the sacraments given to a person on their deathbed to prepare them to meet God at the gates of heaven. Okay, so who can receive anointing and when? This is hugely confusing to people, and I want to help um, explain it. Now, the fact is that anyone who is baptized and at the age where they can go to confession, so basically the age of reason, is able to receive the sacrament of anointing of the sick validly. Now that that doesn't mean, though, that you should always run to the sacrament, there's kind of conditions here. But the church restricts it. So they say that you should only receive it on account of age or infirmity, your sickness, or in some moment of grave danger. It's not to be used like, like Tylenol. Okay? So let's look at our next slide. As I mentioned, they do not have to be dying, but their condition should be serious. This is a priest then giving anointing at the bedside. All right, that's a perfect example. The fact is that the effect of anointing of the sick is the removal of sin. And Marie Romagnano, a great friend of our community, she texted me before. She says, Father, don't forget to mention that not only does it forgive the sin, it, or I should say, don't forget that it forgives all the sins. So even if somebody is unconscious, we can anoint conditionally that they would accept this grace. So don't forget to call for a priest. Very important. The fact is the effect of the anointing of the sick is removal of sins and punishment. Remember, when we go to confession, our sin is forgiven, but sometimes the punishment remains. This is in my other videos on confession. In the soul, in view of death or judgment that could be near, we want them to have this grace. So it kind of completes the sacrament of confession. So remember how I said confirmation completes baptism? Anointing of the sick completes confession. That's incredible. It removes 
sin and the punishment. In the confessional, you're removed of the sin, not necessarily the punishment. Anointing removes the sin like confession, but also the punishment if you're properly disposed. This is amazing. So like confirmation completes baptism and strengthens you even deeper in the Holy Spirit, anointing of the sick completes confession in a way and strengthens you not only by forgiving you of sin, but punishment. Wow. So anointing is very, very powerful um, in the same way that confirmation is. All right, the celebration of this sacrament should be first done with confession. So we should proceed or it should be preceded by confession if possible. This is a powerful, powerful thing to remember. The celebration, if you're going to do this sacrament, again, should include confession beforehand. Now, it gives a forgiveness of sin even if a person wasn't able to first do confession. You try, but if you can't, it's still valid. That's Catechism 1532. Remember, please, when you send me these letters, know that I've done my homework and I've checked in church teaching and verified. I have theologians that I discuss things with. Trust me, these are all I'm giving you within church teaching. Now, it gives comfort, peace, courage, and forgiveness of sins if the person isn't able to get to the confessional. Now, this sacrament can be repeated, unlike the other ones I talked about. Holy orders, baptism, confirmation is not repeated, but confession, holy communion, matrimony, if your spouse dies, and anointing can be repeated. Now, when can it be repeated? If the sick person recovers, then becomes sick again. You can repeat it. Or if you got anointed, and then you get worse with the same sickness. So maybe you have cancer, you get anointed, but then the cancer goes to a new stage, worse stage. Then you can be anointed again. Caddy, uh, Canon Law 10, uh, 1004. Or as I said, prior to an operation, if you're going under anesthesia, because there you're not near death, but you're in the danger of death. There's always a chance that you might not wake up from anesthesia. Now, now please don't let me scare you if you've got surgery coming up. I've been under anesthesia. These people are wonderful. It's one in a million problems, but it's something to be aware of. All right. If you have been anointed and are no longer ill, then you should not be anointed again. However, however though, if you were anointed and there's ongoing suffering, and you have issues, then you may be anointed again periodically. Not all the time. God is using our suffering sometimes to help others. We don't always want to absolutely try to deny that. Remember Galatians 4.13, what St. Paul said? Let me remind you. St. Paul had not, if St. Paul, okay, think about this. Had St. Paul not become ill, while on his first missionary journey and had been forced to stop traveling, he would have never been able to preach to the Galatians. And he told them, quote, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I was able to preach the gospel to you first. Wow. Man. 
All right, let's go through a couple of canons and canon law. I don't want to spend much time on this, but really I picked out the best ones to summarize for you. Canon law 1004 says, one must begin to be in danger of death or at the point of death. Again, danger of death could be sick. Now somebody said, well, Father, what about severe depression? Well, if that could lead to suicide or extreme anxiety that you're fearing for your life, yes, can be anointed. Canon 1005 says, 1005, 1005, the sacrament is to be administered in a case of doubt whether the sick person has either actually died or has attained the use of reason. They can be anointed if the priest isn't sure, like a little child. Child might be six. Technically, the age of reason in the church is seven. Can they be anointed? Yes, if the priest thinks, well, there's some doubt, I'm not sure if they're of the age of reason or not. Or perhaps they're eight, technically over the age of reason, but they're immature. The parent might say, well, they're not of the age of reason. The priest says, well, I'm not sure. You can anoint. Canon 1006, the sacrament is to be conferred on the sick who at least implicitly showed that they would have an interest in requesting it when they were in control of their faculties. So if you heard somebody saying, I don't believe in that sacrament garbage, heaven forbid, that'd be terrible. But we do know people like that. All right. Canon 1007, the anointing of the sick is not to be conferred upon those who persevere, persevere obstinately in manifest grave sin. Unless they show some form of repentance. I know people who live their whole life in sin, but on their deathbed realized, oh man, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, Lord. All right. In any case, the anointing prepares the sick person for their journey home to God the Father. Remember, all comes from God the Father. All will return to God the Father. Exitus reditus. Now, let's look at our next slide. What is this? All right, we Marian fathers used to do this a lot. It's called a healing mass. Now, in the healing mass, people would drive... Now look at this. What's going on? The priest is putting oil, right, on the head. And a lot of people call it anointing. This is very important. And people would drive for hundreds of miles to come here to our healing mass, but wouldn't even bother going to their church down the street for Sunday mass. Uh-uh. You don't do that. Now a healing mass, this is important. Because most of them, not all, are not sacramental anointings. The word anointing means to bless. So when we would have people come here, Father Bob Vanetti was excellent at explaining, please understand this is not the sacrament of anointing. People would line up and want to have the oil put on their forehead, and the priest would put the oil on the forehead. That was just a blessing. It wasn't even the, uh, the oil of the infirmed. It was like St. Faustina, blessed oil. That's not sacramental oil. Don't think when you buy blessed oil, or I'm sorry, when you buy oil and then it's blessed, or donate and then get it, that that oil is sacramental anointing. It's not. So we have to be sure that these healing masses are not necessarily misunderstood. Now, there is a thing in the church called communal anointing of the sacrament. 
We used to do it, Father Bob told me here, once a year on Our Lady of Lourdes for healing. Now that is where the actual sacrament is given. Oil of the infirmed is used. That, where you got to now use your best judgment because everybody, the problem with that is everybody comes up. I would see teenagers coming up giggling and laughing. They probably shouldn't. Now for the blessing, that's okay. But we're talking the sacrament of anointing. So if you go to a service, you might want to ask the priest, is this a blessing with oil or is this the sacrament of anointing? Because the sacrament of anointing should be for serious cases, not because you got a sliver or that you had an argument with your spouse. Even those are good things to pray for. All right. So use your judgment to attend the general anointing mass for the communal anointing of the sick, but limit the times you go to the actual sacrament because it should be again for serious illness, not just for anything. Now in the Byzantine rite, Father Seraphim, remember I told you he was dual rite? The Byzantines are Catholics. They're Eastern Catholics. Everyone is allowed to receive the sacrament once a year on Holy Wednesday of Holy Week. Isn't that interesting? So very interesting. All right, let's wrap it up now. I told you before, don't let people get scared. When you, when you call the priest for anointing, many times I've seen the patient freak out. That they, they think the priest is the angel of death. They think the priest is coming in and giving them last rites. It means you're going to die, Grandma. Grandma, we really, we're convinced, we're convinced you're dying. So we called the priest to come to give you last rites. And poor Grandma freaks out. I don't want to die yet. All right. What do we need to know about this? By itself, anointing of the sick is not last rites. Since it is just... For those, okay, this is, I I, want to really stress this now. Since it is not just for those who are dying, it shouldn't scare people like the last rites. Last rites are a bigger thing. They include not just anointing, but confession, confirmation, if it's lacking, anointing of the sick, and viaticum, which is your final receiving of Holy Communion. Different from just anointing. Anointing used to be called extreme unction. Here we're praying for healing. No, Grandma, it's okay. The priest is coming because we're praying for your healing. Not to send you away. Well, if God, you know, if God decides to take them, but please try to get them at ease. The most important part of the last rites is the reception of the Lord in Holy Communion. This is viaticum. Latin, which means take on the road. Like you hear some priests say, food for the journey. That's the last rites. All of those things together. Confession, confirmation if it's needed. Anointing of the sick and viaticum. Anointing of the sick by itself is extreme unction. It's for healing. The sacrament of anointing is to help bring people healing if God wills it. All right, last page. Now. What about anointing of the sick when somebody dies? If the priest arrives right after the person has died, what happens? All right. If a priest is not sure if the person is dead, he can anoint sacramentally on condition or conditionally. 
The church teaches that the moment of death is when the soul leaves the body. But, that's Catechism 1022, but we don't know exactly when that occurs. So if the body is still warm and there's no evidence of stiffening like rigor mortis, the priest has reasonable doubt that the person may be still partly alive. And he can administer a conditional anointing with the words, if you are still alive, we pray through this holy anointing and the rest of the rite. So when the priest has been called to come see someone who's already dead, if he knows for a fact they're dead, they've stiff, rigor mortis is set in, they pray for the dead person, asking God to forgive their sins and receive them into his kingdom. If the priest is not sure that they're dead, they can give anointing. But if they are sure that they are dead, they should not do an anointing. But if the priest is doubtful, they can do it, as I said, sac uh, sorry, conditionally. All right. Last couple of quick things. Who may do the anointing? All right. Jesus gave the healing power to priests, his apostles, the first priests. So the priest may anoint, but not the deacon. The deacon cannot. Our Lord entrusted the healing ministry to his apostles who began the line of priests. He instructed the apostles and sent them out on a mission. Y'all remember Mark 6, verse 12. They expelled many demons, anointed the sick with oil, and worked many cures. At the ascension, Jesus reiterated this and declared that the sick upon whom you lay your hands will recover. Mark 16, 18. Interesting. The administration of the sacrament of anointing of the sick is restricted to a priest because the major effect is tied to the ministry of the priest, which is mainly forgiveness of sins. Again, the priest doesn't deserve this. He's not better. He's not more holy necessarily. It's just how Jesus did it. So given this, a lay person if you have a healing service or let's say an actual anointing within mass and you go to your church and the priest says, we will do the sacrament of anointing and me and Father Bob will be over here and Mr. and Mrs. Smith will be over there and you can go to either one, uh-uh. Not for the sacrament. If it's anointing, it has to be done by a priest. So... Anointings are also to be done by the hand, only in extreme cases, and I just saw one, because of coronavirus, they gave the priest the ability to use a cotton swab. Please don't get upset. That is allowed through the authority of the church. Not preferred, but allowed. All right, my last section, can non-Catholics receive anointing of the sick? All right. If they asked, yes, they can. People got very angry at me because I explained this was the same with the communion if people asked for it. Yes, there are many conditions. Now, if they ask, then they would have to be baptized first. If they weren't baptized validly in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they cannot receive anointing nor confession without being baptized. 
So they would first be baptized, then confirmed, then given the Eucharist, then anointed, all at the same time. That's how children used to be done. In fact, in the East too. But they got to be open to baptism to start. But they must, must be open to confessing faith and belief of Christ in the sacraments. If you don't believe Christ is in the sacraments, this doesn't count. So baptism is a gateway to all the other sacraments. So we don't anoint someone who hasn't been baptized. Now, my last slide of the presentation, and then I got some other wrap-up things. Form and matter. We talked about this before. That's what makes a sacrament a sacrament. The form of the words used, the matter is the material. So what about anointing of the sick? What is the form, the words that are used? The priest says, as he is placing the oil on the forehead and on the palms. If you're at your bedside of your loved one and they don't do the forehead and the palms, they need to. And the priest says, through this holy anointing, may the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. You're being sealed in the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin save you and raise you up. While anointing, as I said, the hands and the forehead. Now the matter of the sacrament is the holy oil. In confirmation, it's the holy oil and laying on of the hands. Same with holy orders. Now, the sacraments touch all important moments of Christian life. So the topic of this was, what about non-Catholics? The first thing is, get them to be Catholic. It's the way to salvation. Don't be afraid of the responsibility that comes with the grace because you don't get anywhere without the grace in the first place. So you might as well take the grace and then try to cooperate. Get them to be Catholic. Remember, all of the sacraments, all that I've been talking about today, anointing, confirmation, baptism, they're all ordered to the Eucharist. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us they're all ordered to the Eucharist. That is the source and summit of our faith. But man, do they help you get there. The other sacraments will help you get to eternal life. Amen? Amen. God bless all of you for sticking with us. That's the presentation. I have a few announcements, if you can bear with me for just a few more minutes that I think are super important that I want to talk about. All of this is based on God's mercy. And God's mercy is so powerful. And it's hard for me to always try to explain everything. And maybe you've heard one of my talks or two of my talks, but not this talk, not that talk. If you can, the next slide is my book, my new book called Understanding Divine Mercy. You can get this at shopmercy.org or call 1-800-462-7426. Get a copy. This is very, very, very important that we know about God's mercy. And that book summarizes all of it, what you need to do that God teaches through his mercy and what you need to know to get these incredible graces. All right, next slide. Please, if you haven't already, become a Marian helper. There is no cost. It takes 10 seconds to sign up. Just visit micprayers.org. We're bringing you some great teachings. We want your prayers. We want to pray for you. That's what this is all about. Join up, power in prayer. We pray for you, you pray for us. Man, many more graces. 
You share in the graces of all our rosaries, prayers, penances, masses, just as if you were a member of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception without having to be a priest. <laughs> That's a great deal of grace. So consider that. And also, help us spread and evangelize by subscribing to our YouTube channel that you're watching right now, hitting the notifications. We're on Facebook, like us. Because on YouTube, the more that we have watching, the more they make us as suggested videos to other people on YouTube. So you can actually help evangelize simply by subscribing because then we become more put on the, on the side, on the right-hand side of people who are watching YouTube as suggested videos. This is beautiful. It was so funny. This one guy, some of you probably saw this comment. This was hilarious. This one guy says, you keep, your videos keep popping up on my suggested videos and I can't get rid of it. And I wrote back, I said, dear so-and-so, God bless you, but maybe God's trying to tell you something. <laughs> so you can help us do that. All right, now, the last couple things. Uh, I mentioned before, and I apologize, I gave the wrong date, but it would be great to have you guys with us. I'm doing two pilgrimages in the next couple years. Uh, and in the next year, God bless you. I would love to meet as many of you as I can, spend time with you, have dinner with you, talk with you. If you join us, look at the first slide. This is a pilgrimage that I will be doing with Stephen Ray. And if you haven't known Stephen Ray's pilgrimages, they're the best in the business. This one's a little bit more expensive, but my gosh, it's a pilgrimage of a lifetime, the trip of a lifetime. It's called The Footsteps of St. Paul, this is from October 14th to the 24th, later this year. It is through Greece, the Mediterranean. If you're interested, call 413-298-1303, talk to Peter, or visit us at marion.org pilgrimages to learn more information. If you just call that phone number, Peter can send it to your email. Now, if you're more cost conscious, the next slide is a cheaper pilgrimage that is in France in July, June 20th to July 2nd of 2022. So next year, and this is with Deacon Harold Silvers. If you don't know Deacon Harold, fun-loving, jolly guy, we're gonna just love to be together. These are the only two guys I do pilgrimages with. Outstanding. That is the same thing. Call Peter at 413-298-1303 or visit marion.org slash pilgrimages. God bless you all. You've been fabulous students coming back to seminary with us. There is so many in these two sacraments that 95% of Catholics have never learned, have never heard about, now you have. Share this video, share this knowledge, share the beauty of our faith. This is what it's all about. You know, I was up putting this together, working for several days on this, went to bed super late last night, got up super early, and yeah, it gets tiring, but you know what? When I see your comments, when I see people say, Father, this is making a huge difference, it's all worth it. That's what a Marian helper is all about. We have a God this loving that can help us through with the grace. We just gotta cooperate with it. God bless you. And in the many, many, many trials of life, this is the answer. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? 
because we, Marian Fathers, celebrate a Mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a Mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves. But we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we, members of the Marian Fathers, will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the Divine Mercy. Remember, Jesus told St. Faustina that the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the Shrine of Divine Mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you want to learn more how to be a Marian Helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.